Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Abbas Sundani. Uh, I welcome you on behalf of uh, FSI, Freedom and Spoken Institute. The director is here with us, and will join us later in the panel. Uh, Hoover Institution and the Iranian Studies Program. This event is of course sponsored by these three uh, units in this country. Uh, it is my uh, distinct privilege to introduce to you uh, one of the most uh, famous dual citizen hostages of the hostage-taking Islamic Republic of Iran. There was a time that uh, media was full of his name, uh, and it is one of those rare moments where we have the hostage and a person who had released the hostage, Mike McCall at the time, was involved in the releasing of his uh, uh His crime, of course, was that he worked for democracy in Iran, uh, and was also a dual citizen. He's a social scientist of great uh, renown. He has worked in Iran, outside Iran, with an unfailing dedication to democracy, grassroots democracy, understanding how it works, whether it works, and how the evil forces defeat and contain it. And I think in all three of those, uh, he uh, has an enormous amount of experience to share with us. He writes very elegantly. Um, once I read in Nietzsche that good writing is done with blood, I think he almost wrote with blood. He wrote at great expense to himself, to his family, uh, and the result is an intellect that has enough to tell us about the workings and the failings of democracy in Iran. So the way the rest of the evening will proceed is that uh, Professor Tajlax will talk a little bit about his uh, book. Uh, then uh, Mike and I will join him and have the discussion about the book, about democracy, about the status of the democratic movement in Iran today. Uh, once we have a 15, 20 minute discussion, we will leave the scene and you can ask your questions uh, from him. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Tajlax. extremely grateful for you and Dr. McFowl and the Hoover Institution and Stanford University for inviting me to join with you and with all of the audience who have kindly come out this evening to hear about my experiences and how I put those experiences together in uh, this book which you see um, here. Um, I want to begin a little bit by explaining the context and motivation uh, that led me to uh, write this book. Um, I won't be going into a lot of detail about the social science findings, um, but I'd be happy to share uh, any uh, of those dimensions of the book in the question and answers. Um, and I have a lot to say, but I think it would be of interest to this audience if I um, take you back a little bit to the first time that I went to Iran and how I got involved, first of all, um, uh, in 
and you know how I decided to study um, something so recondite and perhaps nerdy like local democracy. Uh, then how I got involved in working with politics and politicians inside Iran and working with civil society groups and other types of uh, social activists. And then how I found myself slowly drawn uh, and caught between the tectonic plates of geopolitical challenges between the United States um, and Iran at a time of heightened tensions um, that very soon after I arrived in 1998 uh, was um, accentuated by the nuclear um, uh, file and the nuclear uh, crisis that began in around 2003-2004. Uh, okay, so um, first of all I want to say that the findings of the book are important because of um, one particular reason, and that is the persistence of authoritarianism in our world today, and the growing authoritarianism that we see around the world. Everyone is aware that a lot of the countries that became democracies in the 1980s and 1990s, there has been a degree of black backsliding. Um, not only in developing countries, but in also certain Western countries. So this issue of um, uh, authoritarianism doesn't only relate to Iran. And I see the importance of this book as bringing one case study to a much larger phenomenon, which is the growth of authoritarianism, and the way Dr. Milani also mentioned in his kind introduction, the way in which authoritarian states are able to beat back democratic challenges. And I think that one of the challenges in our world today is both to understand the strength of authoritarian systems, the way they're able to manipulate institutions like elections, and conversely, understand the weakness of democratic systems as we generally, um, uh, we support them, but often without understanding at a very granular level how the democratic systems can be um, institutionalized in people's everyday lives. And, the, and my book is a case study that looks at over a 20-year experiment in which the attempt to create more democratic, more accountable, and more participatory institutions in Iran was first of all conceptualized, then put into law, then implemented by a reformist administration, and then beaten back over a 20-year period. And so the book, which came out in 2022, tracks this 20-year uh, experiment in uh, what is ultimately a tragic failure of the attempt to create local democracy inside Iran. <coughs> so the findings of the book, I think, are important for us today and looking forward because it provides a granular, and I hope scientifically rigorous, explanation of one of the, of this worrying and important trend. This trend of authoritarian persistence, growth, and resilience against democratic challenges. Um, so, 
What we see is authoritarian states, despite widespread discontent amongst populations, um, and sometimes vigorous challenges, like many of you have, I'm sure, been following since uh, last September in the mass Amini protests in Iran, the ability of authoritarian states to um, beat back these challenges. And you know, I will share with you a, a, an insight which I think is telling. Um, I've been giving a lot of speeches and talks and writings about the Massa Amini protests, and I have recently um, you know, come to the conclusion that unfortunately it seems that the Islamic Republic has been relatively successful in suppressing these uh, protests, these protests that demand structural change. The question is that if you look at the history of the Islamic Republic of Iran, it has been in existence for 43 years. And when some, uh, when some observers feel that protests such as the Massa Amini protests or even the 2009 Green Movement, which was when I was arrested um, uh, for the second time, um, uh, erupt, that those are very powerful and likely um, let us say, instruments of social change and social transformation. But consider this fact. The Islamic Republic of Iran has been in existence for 43 years. And if you add up all the days, let, let us say the weeks and months, in which there have been serious protests against the Islamic Republic, they would probably add up to no more than one and a half years or two years of a, a stretch of time. And that is of the 43 years of the Islamic Republic's existence. Why is that important? That's important because it means that ordinary Iranians, they have to live with that state, the regime of the Islamic Republic of Iran, for the other 41 years. And, it's, and my book shows how um, the Islamic Republic of Iran manages its authoritarian system during those non-protest periods. These are periods of what I call authoritarian order. Um, and it's order because there is a form of authoritarian bargain. I mean, one question is how do these authoritarian states persist? Well, they engage in some kind of bargaining with the middle class, professionals, other kinds of technocrats, strategic sectors of the working class, and so forth. And what we've seen over the last five months is that that authoritarian bargain seemed to hold. That is to say, if you look at the protests, it was very striking over the last three months or four months, 80% or a vast majority of the protesters in Iran were young people between the ages of 15, 16, and the late 20s. You did not see those protests expand to the urban professional middle class. You didn't see them expand to the strategic sectors of the economy. And certainly, you didn't see them expand into the critical uh, pillar of authoritarian power, which is the military and the security services. So, um, you know, we may, I, I look forward to a discussion with um, Dr. Nilani about this, but I have been struck, um, as many Iranians probably have been also, 
that there has been very little um, uh, senior, there's been none, I mean, there has been almost no dissident voice at senior levels of the Iranian government against the government crackdown, against these young people. Almost no senior clerics, no politicians, sitting politicians in the majlis, certainly no military uh, uh, officials, none have criticized the regime in their brutal crackdown against these protesters in which many people have been killed, tens of thousands have been imprisoned. That shows, uh, I suggest, a form of coherence and solidarity and unification of the regime, the regime leadership, uh, to a surprising degree. And my book looks and tries to explain this coherence through focusing on one particular aspect of how the state works on a day-to-day -day basis. So I, look at, I looked at this particular episode in the attempt to create a more democratic institutions as a test case of how the Islamic Republic can um, absorb challenges to its rule and even, um, let us say, control and challenge such a far-reaching transformation of the shape of the state. And I'm referring to the fact that in 1999, the Islamic Republic of Iran decided to create, for the first time in Iranian history, elected institutions at ev in every city, town, and village in this huge country of Iran. A country whose geographic scope is larger than France, Germany, and Italy combined. That is to say, to be able to control this large territory um, and be able to manipulate and channel uh, all these electoral institutions was an uh, astonishing risk for an authoritarian state. And that was the puzzle that I set out to answer. That is to say, why would a closed and illiberal state, which is explicitly um, dedicated to a non-democratic form of rule, it re rejects basic fundamental liberal norms as we understand them in the West, and, uh, and also rejects elections as a form of expression of popular will, why would they risk expanding the electoral mechanism, these, these institutions, to hundreds of thousands of people around the country? Many, many regions of the country in which ethnic minorities are not closely aligned with the regime and could possibly use those bases of electoral um, uh, institutions to mobilize challenges in opposition to the regime. So that was the, that was the, that was the big puzzle that, that bothered me when I, when I um, understood that Iran was about to, do, uh, to undertake this um, reform. So this book um, looks at this 20 years exper uh, uh, um, experiment, which started in 1999. It tries to understand where it came from, who the actors in Iran were that tried to channel these new institutions in different ways, 
and what the outcomes have been in the last 20 years. The basic finding, and it's a sad one uh, for those who wanted these new electoral institutions to be um, agents of change, was that in fact the regime has been very adept and successful at absorbing these new institutions, these hundreds of thousands of elected city councillors, village councillors, and many, many thousands of people around the country that wanted to engage, wanted to be involved in their public life, that the regime has succeeded in absorbing it into the Islamist state system and to preventing it and blocking it from uh, being used to explore uh, more democratic options or opportunities. To give you a bit of flavor about how this came about and how I got involved in this, consider this anecdote. Uh, um, I mean, I'd like to share this anecdote with you about how I came to um, work very closely with some of the architects in the Iranian government who were seeking to create a democratic version of this, these local elections. In around 1999, when I was in Tehran, I went to um, uh, I went to a meeting um, of urbanists, political scientists, and lawyers who were discussing this new law that was about to be implemented. Someone there said to me, "Look, you um, uh, you really need to meet the deputy minister of the interior because he's the one in charge of creating all this new." Um, uh, all these new institutions, and he also is a big proponent of what the reformers that then called strengthening civil society. It was their agenda of democratizing Iran. I said, okay, fine. I will. Um, uh, I'll, uh, I'm happy to you know meet with this person. And he said, okay, I've got an appointment for you, and uh, we can go and we can go and sit in on an important meeting in the Ministry of Interior. Um, you know, next week. So I said, okay, that would be great. I would love to listen to one of the main meetings that uh, the deputy minister is having with, with his staff to discuss the new law. So it was a hot day and I was wearing very casual clothes and uh, we wandered to uh, Fatemi Street, if some of you know where the Ministry of Interior is. And um, we went up to, I think it was the 17th floor where the deputy minister sits. And we were taken into a into a big conference room, and um, I went in with my friend, and we sat at the back of the room. There was a big conference room in the middle. We sat in a few of the chairs at the back, um, ready to take notes and to um, listen and learn. A few minutes later. Uh, Mostafa Tajzadeh, who some of you know, was an important, uh, is still an important politician, currently in prison, um, walked in. He was the deputy uh, minister in charge of these, um, uh, rolling out this new reform. And all his staff, uh, very formally dressed, uh, women and men uh, formally, all came around the table. Um, we waited. We waited for the meeting to start. And, um, uh, once their uh, once their preparations ended, uh, I did notice that the seat next to Mr. Tajzadeh was empty. 
And once they said their hellos to each other, he suddenly turned to me and said, Okay, Mr. Tajvaj, we're ready for you. Please join me. I looked at my friend. I said, what? Uh, and he said, yes. Uh, he said, well, he kind of shrugged. He did know I, that he had set me up. But uh, I said, well, what is this, what is this for? And Mustafa uh, Tajvaj said, please come and sit here and share your ideas about local government and democracy with us. I had I had I hadn't been in Iran for 20 years. My Farsi was rusty. Um, I was uh, self-conscious because I was dressed in a short sleeve shirt, and, and you know Iranians are very formal, particularly in the government sector. Anyway, I sat down and I said I made all these excuses, and Tajul said, "Never mind about this. You know, just just tell me. Just tell me what is the most interesting thing that, that you people in the West, you scholars in the West, are studying, and what are you studying?" terms of this, uh, why are you so interested in local government? I had to think on my feet, and I said, well, um, uh, I came up with what I had been, uh, the project that I was working on at the time. And I explained to him, I said, well, okay, I am working on a project um, based on a very famous theory by a very famous American political scientist, which is like, which is which is very eminent now in the U.S. and many people are talking about it. It's called the Theory of Social Capital, and it's a book by Robert Putnam, and it's about Italy, uh, and it tells the story of uh, in the early 1970s when Italy did what Iran was about to do: decentralized. It provided elections to all the regions in Italy. And Putnam then studied this, and he tried to understand why some of the regions uh, worked better, why some of them were more participatory, more accountable, why they were more popular, and so forth, and why some of them failed. And I told him that this was the model that I had actually proposed to my university to come and study in Iran. I noticed everyone was taking enormous amounts of notes, and I turned to uh, Mr. Pasha, I said, you know, why are everyone taking so many notes? He said, well, you'll see. You'll see. Next week, you'll see what, you know, all the Mr. Putnam's plans will be in my next speech. Um, and I, um, and so I explained to him what, and he said, well, keep, you know, keep going, keep going. Tell me what, the, tell me what this story is. And, um, and I explained to him the, sort of this basic theory. And it had to do with the importance of civil society. Uh, the basic point was where civil society was strong, when the people had participation and were, had access to associations, then their local institutions worked better. That was the basic theory. And I said, I would like to study that in Iran, because you're about to introduce the same, same thing in Iran, and I'm lucky. I'm here right at the beginning and, um, of this experiment, and I'd like to study this over the next 20 years. He was very excited about this, and his response was, uh, actually, I am in charge of these new reforms, and I think what you've explained is really interesting and useful, because the enemies we have in the government, or my opponents, believe that if we disperse, if we multiply and disperse all these electoral institutions out of the capital, to all of the cities and towns, it will be a recipe for chaos in the country. But, he said, 
what you've just told me is the case for why it will not be chaos and why it will in fact help to strengthen the people's connection with their local institutions and then he said with hopefully all of their institutions and he kind of winked at me and said you know that's our ultimate goal our ultimate goal is to it is to deepen democratic connection between the people and institutions at the national level, at the regional level, at the, at the local level. That um, obviously caught someone's attention. Two days uh, later, I received an invitation uh, to go to another meeting. And that was a meeting by another famous uh, politician called Said Hajarian. And Said Hajarian was the head of the presidential strategic think tank uh, and the, probably the most important theoretician in the Islamic Republic working on transitions to democracy. He invited me and he said, I heard you, 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 you talked about something called social capital and decentralization and all this kind of thing. Could you come and give us a little bit more of an in-depth discussion? I went there. Uh, there was a large group of people sitting around and ultimately this kind of uh, idea those politicians took up and several years later it actually appeared as a chapter in the fourth national development law that the parliament passed. It was later rescinded. I tell you these anecdotes just to show that the, you know, the way in which these ideas that were present in the West and related to the questions of democracy soon were picked up by Iranian politicians and reformists and institutionalized into law and acted upon. Soon after I, um, soon after I met these politicians, I decided to move to Iran and to undertake a long-term study of these, uh, these new institutions and to study the way in which the state was changing uh, and whether, that, whether the transformation of the state would in fact lead to any kind of democratization. So as a social scientist, I, I approached this in, a, in an empirical way. It was a question. Um, would it in fact lead to this or would it in fact lead to a more consolidated, powerful authoritarian state? And the bottom line of my research, the finding is, is that after 20 years, as I mentioned earlier, that is in fact what we found, where, what I found, and what you can find documented in the book. Um, that is to say that despite the fact that um, the reformists and democratic-minded Islamists and their secular allies pushed for these new institutions which they felt could bring more democracy, more openness, strengthen civil society, ultimately dilute the concentrated power of the clerical uh, authoritarian state, um, they did not manage to do that. The other aspect I think I'd like to talk about tonight is how um, this uh, experience which I've studied in this book, which is about Iran, is really part of a much longer story and broader arc that I have been involved in personally. Um, I, this is an arc of uh, 
a span of, human, uh, of world history, which I mark from the beginning of the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1991, and I see closing very rapidly from around 2014, let's say the annexation of Crimea, Crimea by Russia, and then recently the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. That is to say, the, I went to Iran not merely to study Iran. I went to Iran to study the ways in which democracy and authoritarianism work in the everyday world. Um, in 1991, I was just finishing up as a graduate student, uh, doing my PhD at Columbia University, and the, Berlin, the fall of the Berlin Wall augured for many people, and for me, a new world. Uh, the possibilities and great optimism about the flowering of freedom and democracy everywhere in the world. Pretty much as, as soon as I finished my, uh, my graduate degree and I started my first faculty job, my first academic job, I was pretty certain I wanted to leave academia and I wanted to work in the uh, field. I wanted to work to promote democracy. I wanted to ride that way. And that, um, uh, you know, that's a wave that I saw you know, beginning in, you know, with the fall of the Berlin Wall it was, it was expressed and encapsulated by Francis Fukuyama and the idea of the end of history and a kind of triumph of liberalism around the world. I deeply believed in that project. I still do believe in that project, although tempered with some more realistic, uh, uh, let us say, caveats about the ability of other countries to implement these kinds of reforms and these kinds of new methods of rule. Um, but um, I... I left academia, I like to think I rode that wave, and um, that was one of the reasons why I decided to make a very fateful decision, which is a very important backdrop to this book, and it's very related both to the attempt that the book documents to promote democracy, but also to its failure in, in Iraq. And that is that uh, soon after I arrived in Iran in 2000 and 2001, I made the fateful decision to join one of the most controversial organizations in, uh, in the world that worked for one of the most controversial men in the world, George Soros, and the Open Society Institute at the time, as it was called. Today it's called the Open Society Foundations. My Work as a scholar researching these, um, these new institutions and the evolution of the Iranian state, I always saw as part of this much broader uh, trend in the world of trying to find ways to land or, let's say, root democratic and liberal systems in the specific cultures and the specific environments in which, you know, are very different and varied across the world. Um, that's why I was involved not only working with specific institutions inside Iran, but while I was there, I became the representative of, of the Open Society Institute. Um, in fact, the connection between the two began very early, in about 1998, when on one of my first 
trips to Iran in the summer, uh, one, of the, one of the senior officers of the Open Society Institute did ask me, he said, you're interested in local institutions? Perhaps you can go to Iran and write, uh, write us a report about the possibility of funding or supporting these institutions, obviously as a form of deepening civil society. I did that, and that's when I became first involved with OSF, and my involvement grew over the years. Unfortunately, about the same time as um, the reform movement was voted out of office in 2004-2005, our work working for open society foundations, which were supporting organizations, civil society organizations, women's groups, NGOs, health groups, all sorts of groups which included you know, this whole ecosystem which was about strengthening the kind of the, the civil society sector began to come under serious scrutiny by the Iranian regime. And this is why not only did projects such as Projects for Local Democracy, but a whole range of projects in Iran um, began to be closed down. And I'm sure Professor McFowell uh, can speak to this in more detail, but as I began to see the pushback in Iran, I could see parallel pushbacks to these kinds of organizations, these kinds of international organizations, such as OSF, that supported democracy in other countries as well, notably Russia. So in, 2000, in the early 2000s, the closing down of, I think, a number of organizations like USAID, NED, and other sort of, um, I think, uh, independent press and so forth, began um, to uh, squeeze and tighten and really uh, restrict the space of the kind of work that we were doing, um, both domestically inside Iran, but also internationally. And Iran began to parallel precisely those kinds of repressive countermeasures that we were seeing in China and also, I'm sorry, in Russia, and then later on in China, when OSF was actually thrown out of Russia, uh, Iran, and then China, and many other places also. So this is a, um, so Iran really is only one case study in what I see as a kind of uh, uh, a period, an important period of world history. Uh, a world, a, a period which begins with the growth of the optimism for a world of more liberal and democratic states and societies to one that unfortunately appears to be under severe strain and closing. And um, my book, my book tells the story in granular detail of one of the ways in which one of the most important authoritarian states in the world managed to block this democratic uh, effort. And I think that um, one of its contributions is to provide ex extremely detailed empirical uh, data and information about how actually institutions in authoritarian states work on an everyday basis. As many of you probably know, we have a lot of discussions, and for those of you who are Iranian, we have a lot of discussions about Iran in very general terms. And it's very hard to get at the sort of the inside of how a state works. So one of the things I'd like readers to take away from the book is to understand what I call this authoritarian order. Those 41 years where there aren't sporadic protests, those 41 years where middle class um, 
working class, other forms of technocrats and experts remain in, a, in this authoritarian bar. As many of you know, who have family or friends inside Iran, um, there is a uneasy uh, coexistence between many of the middle class that don't agree with the fundamental possibility uh, uh, assumptions of the regime, but nonetheless seem to be able to tolerate it, or at least are unable to mount an effective opposition. Um, and whatever opposition is mounted, the regime is able to, um, to push back. So um, uh, ultimately, uh, the end of, the, the end of uh, my fieldwork story came in 2007, um, when I was arrested uh, by the Iranian regime. Uh, some of you may have remem may remember I was arrested with Khanum uh, Haleh Esfandiari, Mrs. Haleh Esfandiari, who was the head of the Middle East program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center in um, Washington, D.C. And uh, that really was a first shot across the bow by the Iranian regime against all forms of international support for internal democratic change inside Iran. Okay, um, uh, that was uh, intended to block and stop uh, all American, particularly American, but also European organizations from having any connection with civil society groups inside Iran. Um, two years later, when the Green Movement blew up and uh, posed a big challenge, the Islamic regime uh, cracked down uh, very hard on the Green Movement and closed down most of the institutions that could be seen as pushing for this kind of local democracy. The main, major, even Islamist parties that were democratic, uh, had any democratic aspirations that had first actually uh, implemented these reforms, they were banned, their parties were forbidden and banned, their leaders mostly uh, jailed uh, or in exile, as they are now, and um, they also blocked uh, the ability of uh, international organizations to support internal civil society groups inside Iran. So, uh, as, as I see it, after 2009, uh, the, any possibility, any strong possibility for reform inside Iran um, was sharply, sharply diminished. Um, I'll just, before closing, I'll just note that um, I have pointed out both domestic and international dimensions of the way in which democracy efforts took place in Iran. I don't want to be misunderstood to say that um, that most of the efforts that took place in Iran were instigated, supported, or uh, even started, initiated by external international actors. That wasn't the case. Uh, the, all, most of these democratic uh, efforts were uh, brought about by Iran, Iranians, secular, Islamists, um, but all uh, sui generis, you know, from inside the country, but there were attempts to um, uh, support it from outside. My story then is a story of uh, someone who went, uh, left the West, 
went back to the country of his birth, um, trying to contribute in a scholarly way and in a public policy way and as a, sort of, as a citizen and an activist. But the story I have to tell is uh, a little bit dispiriting, that is to say. Uh, but what I think we could take away from this from the future is that it's a, it provides this kind of scholarly work and other work too, provides a way to dissect and to understand the inner workings of authoritarianism, the authoritarian bargain, and also, I should say, the weakness of democratic systems. Uh, there's a lot of abstract talk about democracy, but when you actually get down to it, uh, when you actually ask people and see how people actually behave in voting and in their neighborhoods and in their communities or even in the polling booth, there's a lot of work to be done. There's an awful lot of work to be done, both in this country and Western countries, but certainly in a country like Iran. So I think that um, I'll end here uh, by saying that, um, you know, um, I would urge you, if you're interested in the details uh, of this kind of um, experiment in Iran, I mean, it tells a story of some uh, of, um, of a very bold and ambitious am uh, uh, of experiment. That, by the way, just because it failed in the last few years doesn't mean it cannot be resurrected in the future. And there's always lessons to be learned, and there's always new things that can be tried. Even now, inside Iran's towns and villages, people can interact with their uh, representatives. They can begin to learn what it means to have a representative. They can try to, to practice this, even though under extremely harsh and extremely limited political conditions. On the other hand, we need to also uh, understand the, the growth of authoritarianism and also to understand the way in which international, um, uh, international relations between countries like Iran and the United States can impact the ability to support uh, democratic movements inside Iran. So with that, I'll stop and I look forward to uh, the discussion with, um, with my eminent interlocutors. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, as we have uh, one of the world's most uh, renowned authorities on the rapid transition and the fight between democracy and authoritarianism, Mike McFaul. And someone that, that was you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's you. Uh, and someone who has followed closely the events in Iran. I know uh, Mike and I have been colleagues here for, I've had the good fortune for 20, I think 22 years. So let's begin with your sense of what was said, uh, and then his comments. I'll offer my sense of developments in Iran, which is in some ways radically different than what you presented. Uh, I'll try to give my two bits on why the failure happened. Uh, and uh, then we'll hear from him, and then we'll open it to your comments and questions. Well, thank you. Fantastic talk. I look forward to reading the book. Um, good to meet you in person. Uh, we've known about each other for a long time. Um, I have lots of ideas, but I'll, maybe I'll try to... Maybe just three. Is that three okay? I'll be, I'll be brief. Uh, and if we have time, I'll, we'll, we'll get into some other things. So, 
Um, I am not an expert on Iran. I, I'm a student of Iran. Uh, I, I have a great teacher, by the way, so I feel very fortunate uh, with the boss. I've only been to Iran once. I was there in 2003 during this reformist period. That's why this is on my mind, the Hatami period. Um, I can't go back. Um, can't go back to Russia. And, I don't think I have many years left to go back to China, but hopefully, because we're, we're on the record, I hope I still can go to China. Um, uh, two or three things that I was struck in your talk. So um, first, uh, you're right that what you talked about is a transnational movement, right? In a transnational field after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the opening up, the end of history, as Frank, our colleague, has written. Um, and there, there are two things that I, I, I was struck by that I want to hear more about in Abbas YouTube, right? So one is um, when authoritarian regimes reform, and I'm going to talk broadly, I, I want to hear about Iran, but I'm thinking about Russia, I'm thinking about China, that's very similar. Um, are those co-optive strategies just to capture and preserve autocracy? Uh, which I think they generally are, but I, I wonder, right? Hatami, for instance, I'm, I'm curious what you both think about. Was he, was he a Gorbachev or was he a Putin, right? That's the case I know the best. Uh, Gorbachev was a real reformer, uh, and then things got out of control. And when they got out of control, instead of cracking down, he let them go, right? So 1989, as you talked about, reforms began, things get out of control in, in, in Eastern Europe. And he could have cracked down. And then he just said, no, I don't want to be that person. 1991, in the Baltic states, I was living in Moscow in 1991, uh, some paramilitary groups went into the Baltic states, two of them, people were killed, and they thought this was the beginning of the end of reform. And Gorbachev said, no, we're not going to do that. And then, remember, August 1991, the conservatives, within his own regime overthrew him. And they attempted a coup d'etat, but by that time it was too late because the decentralized reforms, by the way, the same thing in the Soviet Union, uh, those had spun out of control. So things that had started to reform the Soviet Union, without question, I, I used to know Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev, without question, he didn't mean for this to collapse, but, he, but when it came to that moment, he said, okay, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna intervene, I'm not gonna kill a lot of people. Um, that story, listening to you, tell, tell us what you thought in terms of Hatami and, and the reforms, co-option, or uh, was it always sinister, or was there a moment when they thought it was not going to be sinister? So that's question number one. Question number two is about um, groups like OSF or Soros, right? So think about what a remarkable thing you told us tonight. Uh, that there was a time in Iran, but also in China, also in Russia, uh, also in a lot of semi-autocratic countries in, in, say, Central Asia, where they welcomed groups like Soros, where they welcomed the National Endowment for Democracy. You mentioned them. Uh, you may not know this, but I opened the office of a, a group like that called the National Democratic Institute, NDI, in Moscow in 1992. We were, we were welcomed. And my second question, is, it's related to the first, was that because that was camouflage? And that they were always just wanting to watch groups like ours and ultimately crack down? Or was it because 
That was the moment of the era, and these regimes felt weak, and they had to have them in because the United States was this hegemonic superpower. Uh, or were there genuinely partners, and you know, maybe speak a little bit about the work you did, of people that genuinely wanted groups like Soros uh, and these others uh, to be there. Um, so again, is it, is it just all hypocritical, all cynical co-option, or were there uh, uh, players? Um, the third question, and then I'm going to leave the, the contemporary to a box, because um, uh, you, you said it rightly, and I want to remind everybody, as somebody who studied many collapses of authoritarian regimes around the world over decades, um, uh, there, there's almost not a single case I know that there wasn't attempts at reform that failed before breakthrough. So, so the Serbian case is a great one. The Serbian uh, democratic opposition in uh, 1996 was a great moment in their history, and then they failed. But by the way, it was all about local government reform. It's exactly what you were talking about. Uh, you, you, I'll, I'll send you some things about you. The, 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 I was listening to you, and I was thinking, man, this sounds like Serbia in the 1990s. Uh, and then it failed, and they cracked down, and they lost, and it seemed completely hopeless. And then, in 2000, a, a, comp a, a, a very snug dictator, Milosevic, thought he had everything okay, everything was fine, and so he, he decided to have another election to just ratify his power, and he miscalculated. And that's the fall of Milosevic, and that's the end of dictatorship in Serbia, right? But it was failure in 97, 96, 97, with the local government, with the local elections. Uh, Ukraine is a very similar story, and I, I don't mean right now. I mean the, the, the movement was Ukraine without Kuchma, which nobody here's ever remembered because it was failure, right? 2001, all on the streets, on Maidan, it failed. Uh, I, went to, I went to Ukraine, by the way, in 2002 to do a survey for one of these international organizations, the National Endowment for Democracy, uh, about their funding. And it was a story of failure. All the people they were funding had failed. It felt like the autocrats had reconsolidated. And that was just two years before the Orange Revolution, 2004, right? So I just want everybody to remember that. Uh, lots of failures happen in these times until they break through. And a boss is going to tell us when breakthrough is going to come, because I'm not an expert on that. Uh, um, but one of the things, there are two conditions in these other countries that were present that seem absent today in Iran, but maybe I'm wrong about that. One is, and you hinted at it, splits in the Ashram regime, right? Uh, Serbia had that, Jinjic versus Milosevic. Uh, Ukraine had that, uh, Yushchenko back, back in, in the day. Uh, and then splits again in the, in the Revolution of Dignity. Um, uh, it sounds like that may have happened in the past, but it's not happening now. And I want to understand why not. Because I look at the, the Iranian regime as a not very successful regime, uh, underperforming by any metric. Um, what's happened to the splits from before? Uh, and then relatedly in society, right? So, so you mentioned words like middle class and working class. Um, and I wanted to hear from both of you a little bit more. Not, not about those or self-identity things. I'm more interested in makes your money independent of the state versus makes your money connected to the state. Because to me, that's a more important cleavage than, than how you self-identify middle class or working class. Um, uh, the story in Iran 
it seems to me as an outsider that too many people are dependent on the state. Uh, that's a story that's true in China, by the way. That's a story that's increasingly true in Russia. Um, uh, is it true in, in, in Iran? And is there anything that could change that? So, uh, you know, you, it's hard to mobilize when you're dependent on the state. It's hard to be op opposed to the regime when your livelihood uh, is tied to it. What's striking about the Russia case is Russia was that way. It was called the Soviet Union. Everybody was tied to the state broke apart, there was independence from the state in terms of the economy, but not anymore, right? Putin has closed that. I'm wondering if you could get into, you know, under what conditions is it safe to mobilize against the state? Because if, if you're tied to the state, uh, it's impossible. And then last thing, I went on, I said three, I went on five. I apologize. Um, mobilization. Um, uh, you both, uh, they both been to jail. Uh, they've both been in prison. Um, um, I think people who, who've never experienced that don't understand what it means to protest against regimes where literally they kill you and put you in jail. Um, uh, these are regimes I know well. I just was meeting with uh, Russian opposition leaders and uh, Belarusian opposition leaders in Munich just a couple of weeks ago, and what they would say is, Mike, uh, in fact, we had a conversation about Iran, now that I think about it, with my Belarusian friends, Belarusian friends. You're not supposed to say Belarusian, you're supposed to say Belarusian, just so you, and I have, I know Russian and I, I speak all these, I use, I have a very thick Russian accent when I talk to Ukrainians and I'm trying to get over it, so uh, forgive me. Um, uh, but there's more mobilization in Iran today than there is inside Russia, uh, or even Belarus. Today. Um, and they were telling me, well, that's because it's really dangerous to mobilize. Um, it seems pretty dangerous to mobilize in Iran, too. Uh, and so it's a, it's a twofold question. Is, is, is this the end and, and what we were so inspired by months ago? Is it fizzing, fizzling out because of, of, of a really horrific authoritarian regime? Or is it the calm before the storm, it's been exposed, and the regime has no argument for the future. Uh, and someday, even that violence that, that is too profound and too oppressive in Russia and Belarus might not be too profound, no, too um, great to be overcome in Iran. So those were the, the thoughts I had. You want me to say my two bits as well, and then yeah. you answer? Everything? Okay. I think that's good. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's, yeah. Yeah. No, no, fine. Uh, so, uh, in some ways, connected to you. Uh, first of all, I strongly disagree with your argument that uh, the regime has won. The regime has won a tactical victory in curtailing some of the daily demonstrations. The regime has utterly failed in suppressing this movement. In all the years I have been watching the Iranian opposition, there has never been a moment like today where inside and outside the there is a hitherto silent, pacified, petrified, now mobilized people working to try to create a more democratic Iran. I think it is folly to think that this regime will fall tomorrow. 
it is equally folly to think that this regime can survive. This regime, in my view, has seen its days. It is not easy to dislodge it uh, because it has changed its strategy. This regime did not, I think, contrary to what you say, uh, pay attention to elections. This regime, you said, it rejected elections as the voice of the majority. No, it constantly used elections, fraudulent sometimes elections, managed elections, to tell the world that it has legitimacy. That it, uh, 25 million people have come out to vote for Khatami, but Khomeini said they're really voting for us. This is for the system. Now they have realized they have lost the majority. They're concentrating on the 30-25% that they have, and they're banking and suppressing this movement. Now they don't care about election. The last election was a perfect example to put an idiot, like uh, uh, literally an idiot, uh, a murderous idiot, at the time where everyone knew the country was going towards a crisis. You cannot be a reasonable leadership unless you think the only solution I have is suppress this. So I'll put this guy and I'll put every other person who has a record of being brutal. So they have gone on a different path. And finally, um, the notion that there hasn't been dissension. Right? We have this discussion before. The prime minister of this regime for eight years the favorite minister for Khomeini has now come out and issued a statement and said the game is done. Uh, people like Khatami, Tajzadeh, your friend, uh, five other of Tajzadeh's people in prison, Faizeh Hashemi, the daughter of the architect of this regime, has come out and said the game is over. Some clerics have come out and said the game is over. Some ex-military people have come out and said the game is over. Is it enough to dislodge this system today? No. But does it uh, speak of a profound crisis? I think it does. The fact that they contain this doesn't mean they're going to succeed in containing the next one. They didn't have five million people bombs mobilized outside to this time not allow them to do what they did to the local uh, democratic uh, effort that you were helping. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, before I uh, answer the questions, I do want to take this uh, opportunity publicly to thank both uh, Professor Milani for his work, which has been an inspiration all these years for us students. We followed your work, and it's been a, a, a you know a guide to many of the things and our understanding of, particularly pre-Islamic Iran, and it allows us a much better idea. So I would like to thank you for that, and also a heartfelt thanks. I, publicly, I'd like to thank Michael. Um, for his work in supporting me during uh, my incarceration uh, with friends of mine who were at OSF. And I think many things that I don't even know about, uh, you and Bobby were involved in um, and uh, went to a lot of uh, trouble uh, to support us. So I thank you on behalf of me and my family also. 
Um, uh, okay, in terms of the, um, uh, maybe I'll start with your, uh, with the last points first, that was, uh, um, um, uh, I think that this issue, but of course there is one issue which may, I, I may not have emphasized enough. I concur with you that the regime has succeeded in using elections as a way of consolidating their rule. And that's why in the book I use an, uh, I use an academic framework uh, in political science and political theory to, ex what, to explain what I believe is the, um, the nature of the Iranian regime, and that is electoral authoritarianism. And it originally is a bit of a paradox because um, it is true that elections are the sine qua of democratic systems. They are the necessary but non-sufficient conditions of democratic systems. So in other words, yet you must have free and fair elections to have democracy, but that's not enough. But it turns out that you can have undemocratic elections. Now, this may seem unsurprising today, but when I was a graduate student, this was a surprise. It was a puzzle. Everyone believed uh, that, in fact, elections were somehow, um, you know, uh, organically democratic. It would lead to democratic norms. It would lead to democratic forms of behavior and expectations. And so, um, you know, I, I I concur with you. And my book, as I say, is the first account, I believe, that has employed this uh, theoretical framework of the of electoral uh, authoritarianism to the Iranian case. So, um, you know, the, the idea of electoral authoritarianism is, comes as something of a shock. I mean, you know, that is to say that authoritarian regimes can be extremely adept at using a whole panoply of electoral systems to consolidate their rule. And so rather than the, I mean, the contrast here is with our <coughs> classic textbook version of, uh, in Western uh, political thought, that you have an independent civil society that through elections expresses its interests and the government must respond to that. In fact, in systems like Iran, it is the reverse. That is to say, uh, the regime uses the instruments and tools of elections to consolidate their rule. And here, actually, you can, uh, there, there is a somewhat shocking index one can use. And that is to say, if you look at electoral turnout, under free electoral systems, one can gauge the legitimacy of uh, a political system by the level of turnout. Because people are free to turn out or not. Under authoritarian systems, the level of turnout turns out to be the, an index, not of people's legitimacy or, or interest, but it turns out to be the index of the ability of the regime to mobilize people to get out to vote. So there's actually something very bizarre if you look at the electoral history in Iran, uh, which is to say that even when there's like massive political crisis, the, 
the high voting levels remain the same. So there's something else going on than simply the fact that elections are um, you know, an expression of an independent uh, <coughs> society. There are other forms of the ways in which states, and that, and that begins to uh, approximate forms of totalitarianism and, and communism. I mean, after all, under certain communist states, they were voting, you know, and you know, there was a whole literature on why would people vote? <laughs> Um, and and um, you know a simple answer to that question is you know why do authoritarian systems hold elections? In part, as you say, to show off to the rest of the world. But in part, it's to it's to actually indicate their ability to manipulate the population. So um, uh, so now you do make an important point, which is that the Islamic regime has recently realized that, it, that if it's going to lose a lot of, uh, if people are not going to voluntarily go to the polls, they might as well not keep blaring out a propaganda to go to the polls. But, um, but we'll, see, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But, that, but that in short, I concur with your idea that, and, it, and I didn't want to make the, uh, the point that the elections are um, legitimate reflections of popular will. However, the importance of a case study like mine is that it gets down below what might be very general, abstract forms of political behavior. I went into many villages, I went to many cities, and there, whether people vote for the Shiraz City Council or not, sometimes it's related to the repressions in, at the national level, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's related to just the lack of trust in their local councils. And so when people do speak to me, and I speak to people in Iran, they say, well, should we even bother with these local councils? I say yes and no. You're not going to get everything. But on the other hand, there, there is still a space for you to, um, to, um, to mobilize. Um, the broader point, Abbas, about uh, where we do disagree, I think, is that um, uh, I, I see the regime as much more consolidated, unfortunately. I don't say this happily. I see it as much more consolidated, much more unified than fragmented or um, under challenge. Um, I don't see serious fissures in the senior leadership. Um, uh, there are dissenting voices. Most of them are in jail. Most of them are marginalized. Um, and they don't have any organizational power to translate dissent into an organized uh, opposition that can undertake, let's say, a pact uh, negotiation with the state. So, unfortunately, um, you know, I find that um, you know that's that's my take. And one of the things in the book, uh, one of the findings that you take away from the book is actually you can see how deeply institutionalized the state is. Um, there was a there was a novel David Ignatius of the Washington Post wrote years ago. I don't know whether you know it. It's a spy novel based in Iran. And he said something very interesting in that. He said, Iran, unlike many of the countries in the region, is a real country. And then he says, why? He says, because you can always find the street, uh, you know, street signs. They work. That was something like, you know, the roads work. Um, so there is this tip of the iceberg, which when you are in Iran, and when you get to do, when you get to look at this administration, 
people going every, every day, you know, the things you have to negotiate, your telephone bill, your garbage uh, pickup, your children's school, your health insurance, your um, you know, relationship with the local police, all of these things are what I, what I witnessed, in my view, were like 80% of everyday life. And that's the authoritarian bargain. It's the everyday life that people operate. And I think that they fear, uh, uh, as you say, they fear losing that if they, if they revolt. Um, uh, Michael's points. Um, Co-optive or cynical um, in terms of elections and uh, sort of democratic niceties. And was Khatami maybe a Gorbachev or not? I think that one of the things, and I do report this in the book, in my experience, I, I learned this very, I think, from first-hand experience, was that actually what you saw in Iran was that Khatami maybe was not a Gorbachev, but his second-level lieutenants were. And those were the, those were the types of others in the Hajarians who were working under the president's office. Khatami was fairly mild and he was very timid and is still so. But it was what had, what happened was that beneath that that top leadership grew a circle that was serious about transition. Um, uh, was was serious about transition. So there was in a sense both. You have to pick the sample. If you just only look at this part of the sample, you, you would see some kind of cynicism, but or, or let's say not so much dedicated to a serious transition. But the people who were architects of new institutions, new laws, uh, new ways of doing things, they were serious, um, in my view. And, and, I, and I record that because I follow the way in which the actual institutions um, were implemented and were seriously considered as uh, alternatives. Um, why did they uh, allow people like Soros and um, uh, and groups like that? I, you know, that's a great question. Um, and I, I actually, I actually have a very uh, personal sense of that. When I first went to Iran in the 19, in 1998 to 90, about 2003, when the Fatemi was there. I could walk into the Ministry of Interior uh, uh, expert offices. And it wasn't only because I was arrested in 2007 that I was blocked. All my colleagues, no one else could, after, after 2007, 2009, you couldn't get into the building. And, and, it, and it, wasn't just, it wasn't just the OSFs or the LEDs, it was just like there was, I think, I think part of the answer and I, and I think maybe Tom Carruthers or your colleagues who wrote this, is actually the authoritarians were just slow on the uptake. They didn't realize what these groups were up to. They didn't, it, it took time. You, you know, I, I mean, after the unipolar moment, I mean, after 1991, um, um, I think, you know, authoritarian states started to sort of react. It just simply took time. When people came, and so, when I started with OSF, we had meetings with Zarif, who was the permanent ambassador to the UN and later foreign minister. And in fact, just several months ago, you know, he was uh, he was quoted in Parliament. He he got up in Parliament and he mentioned my name and Soros, saying uh, he was defending himself about why during our time he had even 
had meetings with people from OSF and had signed off on our projects, um, he said, oh, well, I was doing that so that I could, I could control them and uh, report to the proper authorities what they were doing and so on and so forth. But I think, I, I, I think in most cases, it was just simply the authoritarian systems were just slow on the uptake. As, as they got more and more aware of what was happening, they started closing things down. And I, the other thing I would say also is that, you know, we were, after I was arrested in 2007, with Hale Isfandiari and Ramin Jahanbeglu, who was a uh, philosopher, we were, put, we were um, uh, put on TV, on national TV, um, in a program which in Persian was called Be'esven Democracy, in the name of democracy. That is to say that we were hypocrites, that in the name of democracy we were really agents of imperialists, this, that, and the other. Later on, it turned out, that was exactly the name of the program that in Russia had been aired a year before. And so my, uh, my understanding is that the reaction against, uh, my rea the reaction against the, the, you know, Iranian authorities, Russian authorities, they worked together in pushing back against what they saw as color revolutions and, and these kinds of organizations. Um, your third point about conditions for authoritarian collapse and the absence of fragmentation. Again, this comes back to our understanding, and I, and, and, you know, I think, I mean, I just have to say, I, you know, being in an Iranian prison could, for a long time, and in solitary confinement under the boot of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, um, I will concede, could possibly distort my view, <laughs> you know, of the Iranian regime. But, uh, you know, when you've got a boot on your neck, the world looks like a boot, or at least the country looks like a boot. And one of the things I took away, and as I say, I can see that I may have sort of overstate the power, but I, what I saw was a much more committed ideological core of the regime than many observers, and that me, myself, had believed. Um, there was a time when the IRGC, the SEPA, was being accused of essentially being a, like a sort of mafia organization, eating up uh, you know, uh, corporations, they're just in it for the money. I remember very early I said, you know, I don't think this is right. I, you know, my sense of them is that they're actually... Then, when the IRGC body bags started coming back from Syria, I said, you see, they're really not into for the money. They're putting their life on the line. They are, uh, they are serious. It's, I mean, obviously it's a minority, so that it, it constitutes a dictatorial form of rule, but they are much more committed to this ideology than I think most of the observers think. And there became, uh, and this idea of fragmentation began uh, to become a, something of a kind of <coughs> Uh, holy grail that we were sort of seeking this fragmentation. Uh, there's always fragmentation within regimes. The question is how much? And um, and I I sensed through looking at you know the sort of sinews of, of, of the regime, the laws, the administrative laws, the way you know the way regions are, are organized, the provinces, the hierarchies, even the money and so forth. 
Um, I sensed a regime which was, you know, for Democrats is an unfortunate thing, but much more committed to staying in power uh, than is typically, uh, you know, understood. And so my, my point is simply we should not overstate the degree of fragmentation um, uh, and, uh, and, and you, know, you know, consider this point. I think, I think many Iranians, because we, uh, people, I can't go to Iran anymore, but other people who travel to Iran and you know, speak with people inside Iran, I think, and we talk about Iran, for, it's been for four, over four decades of the Iranian regime. I think people forget how utterly unique the Islamic Republic is and how utterly an outlier it is on a number of key dimensions. There are only two countries on planet Earth that do not host the US Embassy. Only two. North Korea and Iran. I mean, that is that the, that the Islamic Republic is willing to absorb the cost of this level of alienation and of absorption is something that I think has not been taken seriously. And so in the West, when it, the, the Iranian regime says death to America, you know, you have a lot of people in the West say, well, you know, not, they don't really mean that, you know, it's, it's a tactical thing for them. Well, to keep something up for 43 years, you know, every week, every day, I think reflects uh, sort of a principled stance. So I think, I think the issue of the fragmentation, absence of fragmentation, is a reflection of the still highly ideological nature of the ruling group, the minority ruling group inside Iran. It's not a reflection of Iran in society as a whole, um, but it's a reflection of that uh, of that ruling group. So I think that. Um, you know, unless that is weakened, unless that is weakened over time, um, I think uh, we're not going to see serious fissures. And I'll just say from an international perspective, if I was sitting in Tehran and I've just signed a 20, 25 year agreement with China, I would say that Iran is, is looking at a lifeline. China is going to buy Iranian oil for the next several decades, it needs Iranian oil. The Iranian economy will not uh, collapse. Excuse me, we have a senior economist here. I, 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 uh, I, I'm willing to stand to be corrected. But um, um, essentially, with China backstopping Iran, um, and now Iran entering as the junior partner of a revisionist uh, alliance against the Western liberal international order, I think that, and also, I would say, unfortunately, <coughs> maybe practically, Iran is a nuclear state. I mean, in all essence, um, I think that the Iranian regime has bought itself a tremendous amount of guarantee, both with Chinese backing, Russian backing, um, and with you know being able to sell. Oh, well, so I'm, you know, I think you know that's this side of the. <laughs> But I think we, we want to give some time for people because uh, let me add uh, one thing. You can look at the China deal uh, the exact opposite way. This is a regime that in, in its mendacity actually offered China to become a colony of China. And China went across the Persian Gulf 
and made the deal with United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Qatar. Iran offered China Chalk Bahar. China went a hundred miles down and spent $50 billion, 10 times the total amount they have ever spent in Iran to build a port there. China is not banking on this regime state. China thinks like me, this regime is a god. Now, let's have the people ask the question. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay. No, please answer. No, no, no. No, we want the people yeah. to ask the Oh, okay. Please, please. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Fine. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, well, um, in, in terms of local in participation, local government, actually, actually, Ahmadinejad, when he came power after a few months, uh, he decided that we have to actually close the central planning organization. That was, that was his, his, his way of doing it, saying that local government, such as you know, provinces, have to make their own decision on making planning. We have to close central planning organization. So therefore, that movement was actually inside the country. So I just want to point this out. In terms of your own experience, and, and, and you know, with the graduate students of Stanford, in 1976, the government central planning said that we need to have some kind of reform situation inside Iran for the planning organization. So then the, the, the deputy went around and said, okay, we can't find, you know, leftists are in UC Berkeley, so maybe we can get somebody from Stanford. I was hired at, from, from here as a graduate student, not finishing my PhD yet, and went there inside the central government, okay, I said, we need to have local participation. What? What the hell are you talking about? What? Public participation in project development? Yes, sir, this is how it's been done in America. NEPA was just instituted. National, uh, National Policy Planning Act was instituted here in the U.S. And then we were sort of advocating that kind of concept. So therefore, there was an opening, opening gate within the planning organization. You know, previous government was not less autocratic. Right? Yeah. So therefore, there was a certain kind of movement going on, but, but then that ended up to different situation that we know. Maybe the current government is also learning from that experience. If you're really opening up too much, you're not going to be able to survive. So that's the kind of conclusion that I get. Thank you. Um, I'll just explain a point that, uh, in, in this, which is in one of the chapters in my book, um, I, um, I, I explain how I came to an interesting, um, uh, an interesting uh, discovery in my research. It's always great to, as a social scientist to have a discovery which you were completely unexpected. When I first went to Iran, as I mentioned, the whole idea of, the, of these of expanding the electoral machinery into the local, uh, in, into sub-national sub or local elections. Um, everyone thought that this was a brainchild of the reformists because it was part of their democratic program. 
When I started doing the research, I started looking at the law and trying to trace the origin of the law. And I came up with something which was completely surprising and counterintuitive. That in fact, the law which the reformists implemented, this was the 1996 law, was not initiated by the reformists at all. It was initiated by the hardline Velayi Fourth Majlis that sat from 1992 to 1996. And the person who had introduced the bill in 1993 was the former chief of ideological conformity of the army, and he was a cleric. And so obviously, the goal of this political decentralization was not democracy, and it was not liberalization. So this was the first puzzle. This was the first puzzle that I was able to uh, unravel. And what that showed me, and actually it relates to your point, sir, is that um, there turned out to be three groups of people inside Iran. And my book does this by chapter by chapter. Three different groups that had three different interests in what to do with these, this ex expansion of the electoral machinery. One were the uh, Islamist rulers, uh, rulers. Their goal was whatever new institution is created in society, it must conform to our uh, objective of Islamizing the entire society. The second group were all those technocrats and experts in the central planning offices and in the ministries. And their goal, they often they would tell us, is we want better efficient management of local areas. It's a huge country, we have bad development planning, we have bad implementation, you know, there's huge backlogs in the capital programs and that drains the government's deficit and so on and so forth. And we need to get we need to get better planning. We need to get better information of what's going on. And the third group later came on were the reformists who took these original ideas and tried to steer them in a more democratic direction. But finally when I look to see the origin of this law, the reason why the hardline Islamists in the fourth Majlis in 1993 even thought about this was because it was a response to a whole range of urban riots that took place in Iranian cities. <coughs> Some of you remember in Iraq, in Mashhad, in Tabriz, in a whole group of cities. And that was because of a combination of high unemployment, urbanization of people who had been demobilized after the war ended in 1989, and also brutal forms of land management. You know, Scots squatter settlements would, would go, and that they didn't know what to do with them, and they would just bulldoze them. This, this led to rolling riots. Islam Shah in Iran, was a, outside of Tehran, was famous. The, um, and this is an interesting quality about the regime in Iran. It's often referred to as being responsive, but not accountable. Which I think is it's important to think about. It's responsive, but not accountable. And in a sense, you know, even dictatorial regimes can be responsive. They, can re they have to respond for their own self-interest. That's why the law was created. They came up with the idea of, the Islamists came up with the idea of maybe we can channel the people's discontent through local locally elected managers. They didn't listen to the technocrats, some of them, who wanted to emulate what China had been doing, 
which was using decentralization to create local economic development. That, I treat that in a, in, uh, in a chapter of the book, um, uh, but I also say that was like one of the missed opportunities in this whole 20-year experiment. Scholars who look at the, at the experience of China, the greatest economic miracle in the history of mankind over the last 30, 40 years, scholars who want to point to one factor to explain that, is, in fact, decentralization to local government officials, but not political decentralization. Administrative and fiscal decentralization, in other words, they gave appointed local managers a, 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 um, a ability to uh, trade and sell land. And that has accounted for massive uh, economic development which just accumulated. Iran missed out on that. Iran missed out on that partly because that wasn't the goal. The goal wasn't either local economic development or was it democratization. And so ultimately, as I say in my book, after 20 years, the, actually the original goal of the law has won out, which was to Islamize all, the organ, you know, all these institutions and prevent and block all democratic challenges. Thank you for your uh, presentation. Uh, actually, I have a frequently asked question. Uh, do you think uh, Iranian society is ready for this kind of democracy? And also, uh, I want to know, uh, what would you say if you enter tradition and modernism in your model? Well, that's a tough question. Um, you know, the idea of making claims about a whole society and a culture is very hard, partly because cultures change, um, and under different circumstances, they can move one way or the other. Um, is, uh, uh, you know, I would say humans everywhere, if you leave them alone, if government leaves them alone, they want to be creative and they want to, you know, tend to be, want to be free, and they, um, uh, you know, they have the capacity to organize themselves in relatively free ways. On the other hand, I'm also a realist who looks at data and looks at public opinion. And um, one of the things about tradition and modernity you mentioned is that uh, there may be a complicating factor. I mean, I say this in a kind of, uh, uh, I, I, want to, I want to be careful how I say this, in a complicating factor is that Iran uh, society, parts of Iranian society, are still struggling with certain aspects of modernity, coming to terms with modernity. Um, but I don't see that as, a, a, as an overall uh, problem. I mean, we have had over the last few decades massive intellectual revolution inside Iran. Even Islamists uh, who didn't, didn't agree with uh, Democratic ideas uh, are now supporting it, you know, just like Abbas said. Um, uh, and so I don't think there's any, I, I could not point to a kind of some sort of solid obstacle or block preventing, uh, a, a, you know, a, a democratic transition. Um, a lot of it has to do with incentives and the political economy, the ability of the state to control so much centralized resources. And block, uh, you know, and block civil society. So I, I, 
I could go on, and I, it's, a, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult question about culture, but, um, I, uh, but I think that in the end I would not say that there is a kind of some sort of, you know. Well. So, as a, yes. so as a social scientist, um, what would you say is the missing ingredient for the fall of the regime? You know, if you look at it from an economic sense, right, um, this government, um, you know, the, um, uh, you know, retirement foundation, the pension foundations, all of them are bankrupt. The banks are overextended in credit, $2 trillion. People can't even buy rice anymore, right? So economy is hell in hand basket, long gone. And the whole Islamist attitude, the whole, you know, religion is everything you have to live for, is utterly rejected by the youth, right? I mean, they're on the other side of the pond. They don't even want any religion, if you listen to them carefully, right? And they're big and growing part of society. So it's like you have an organ in your body that you're rejecting. You don't have enough blood flowing in there to bring oxygen in. So what the heck do you need before this regime falls? What's missing? <laughs> okay. So uh, I, one, of the, one of the few rules and laws that I learned as a, in political science, and there aren't many, you know, there's one, but there's one that seems to be fairly rock solid, and that is organized minorities are more powerful than disorganized majorities. At this time. Beg what? At this time, yes. But next six months, I'll let you know. Well, well, I mean, it's a it's a law. I mean, it, it, it you know, it, in other words, numbers numbers uh, need to be weighted by your ability to uh, leverage those numbers into organization. So, a small group of people who are highly organized, highly ideologically committed, and highly um, uh, you know committed to the uh, the continuance of the regime um, can, uh, you know, are more powerful than millions and millions of people who are incoherent, uh, do not have political organization, and cannot translate that into organized opposition. Um, and so that's one point. The second point is that, you know, the definition of an authoritarian state is a state that rules without the consent of its population. So, I mean, you know, we call a liberal democratic state, in the classic words of uh, the Federalist Papers, you know, the government rules by the just, its just powers are derived from the consent of the government. The Iranian regime rejects that. The, 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 the logic of, uh, of, a, of, a, um, of the Vilayat Fadi state is that it does not derive its just powers from the consent of the government. It doesn't have a mechanism to ask for the consent. So that's why you will always have the nature of authoritarian states are cycles of repression and revolt. So the, 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 the short story here is what you're saying is that what's missing is organization skill at some scale that could tip this thing over. We just lack organization principles within the country and the opposition side? Well, I mean, of course, you know, organizations uh, can be repressed, as they have been, 
And this, and as I say, I mean this point I, I made earlier is that I think you, should, I think we underestimate the utter uniqueness and ideological feature of this regime. I mean, most revolutionary theory says that after a time, revolutionary revolutionary states become tired, they become cynical, they become so forth. We don't see this that much. We see, a, you know, a re-radicalization, a re-radicalization of young seminary students. Yes, there are you know, many young people who are opposed to the regime, but there are other people who are willing to enter into this authoritarian bargain. Um, and so if you actually look at the seminaries, what you found over the last 10 years is a re-radicalization of, of the young seminarians who combine forms of, let us say, authentic belief with just opportunistic um, you know, uh, objectives of getting paid by the state and becoming clerics uh, of the state. So I think that, you know, when you say is what is missing, is I think that, you know, well, one thing is numbers. I mean, if you want to, something as a social scientist, um, one researcher has done a study of every revolution over the last hundred years. And she's come up with something, and a couple of people have come up with something called the 3.5% rule. Or the 3.5 or 5% rule. And that they have found that no public mass mobilization in any country that reached 3.5% of the active population in the streets ever failed regime change. Now, 3.5% of an active population in Iran of, let's say, 60. 60 million, 60, 70 million, would be about two or three million people in the streets. I mean, given, you know, in, in terms of this number, you would need to see two or three million people in the streets to get to the point of regime change inside Iran. And there, there's some logic to this. In other words, if you get 3.5%, 5% of the population in the street, you don't have enough police. You typically, a country does, typically doesn't have enough police or security forces to track them all down. At some point, it breaks. If you look at the protests over the last five months, you know they have not reached that scale. We have uh, two rules in Iranian studies: we begin on time and we end on time. We kept our first rule this time, but it was so fascinating. We broke our second rule. So uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, thank you very much for a wonderful presentation and for a great book. There are books to be purchased. As Mike McFall tells every audience where we have a book talk, he says, these books can only get published if you buy them. So please buy them and he will sign them. And thank you all for coming. Thank you.